Well, good morning, church family. It's good to be here with you. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open those to the book of Colossians. That's where we will be today, Colossians chapter 1, for our scripture reading. So today we're going to read out of Colossians chapter 1. As you probably know, we're in our fifth week of our six-week series called Piecing Together the Bible, where we're taking six weeks and just trying to understand how God has fabriced together the redemptive story of mankind. We began with creation, and today we are in the New Testament. And I chose a passage that doesn't really encompass what we're talking about today, but really describes the person that we are here to worship and to believe in. Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 13, is the most amazing Christological treatise, whatever that means. Christological treatise in all of the scripture is just packed. Watch it with me. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, is beautiful. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, both visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Verse 21. And although you, we here today, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you and his body through his death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Amen. It's just an honor to be with you. I say that on occasion. Uh, but I mean it, and um, I just consider it a tremendous responsibility to present truth. I was talking with a friend of mine this week, and I told him that I really do care what actually comes out of my mouth. Uh, it's because it's just a responsibility that we have. And by the time we complete this sermon series, these six weeks, you should have a really basic commentary on every single book of the Bible in a broad understanding how God has fabricated together his gospel to us. And today I'm going to do something a little bit different. This whole sermon series is different in a way, but today it's going to be especially so. I usually structure my sermons inductively. Now what does that mean? I usually structure them inductively where I have a question to answer and then the audience goes with me on a journey to answer or unfold that question and, and what I call a point. But today I want to do a sermon deductively. So right up front what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you my point and then I'm going to prove it to you. As I look at the four gospel accounts and as I look at the book of Acts itself, they all have you know, different audiences and different authors and different perspectives, but they really all, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they really all have the same basic point. What is the point of the Gospels in the book of Acts? What is it? 
that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and the Savior of the world. Right? That's not rocket science. That's pretty much what the Gospel accounts are all about, and really setting out to prove those three things, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and the Savior of the world. And that is my point today. And some of you are saying, um, duh, he is. <laughs> but today I want to do something. I'm just going to tell you my point, and then I want to unfold or prove that statement to you. Because if somebody came up to you at Walmart today and asked you why you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and the Savior of the world, they asked you why, how would you respond? Maybe they saw your cross on a t-shirt, maybe they saw your very old and outdated uh, WWJD bracelet, if you all still have that. I had one. Maybe they saw the fish on your bumper sticker. And they just say, you know, that guy must be a Christian. That lady must be a Christian. So I'm going to go up to ask them the question, why do you believe? Not, not do you believe, but why do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and the Savior of the world? What evidence do we have? The question we are answering today is why. Why can you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and the Savior of the world? That's where I'm heading. So today, to kind of give you a brief overview or review, kind of placing us today in our context of this sermon series, we have spent four weeks so far unpacking the scripture, piecing together the Bible, trying to assemble a puzzle, so to speak. We spent three weeks in the Old Testament, and then we speak, spent one week in something called the 400 years of silence, which is the 40 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I boiled down the Old Testament to ten events. I'll quickly revisit those. Event number one of the Old Testament is creation, Genesis 1 and 2. Then event number two is the fall of man, seen in Genesis chapter 3. Then event number three is Noah and the flood. Event 4 is Abraham and the birth of the nation, which starts in Genesis chapter 11, then goes to the end of the book of Genesis. Event number 5 is Moses and the exodus from Egypt. Event 6 is Joshua, the guy who takes the baton. Joshua and the conquest of the promised land. Event 7 is the coronation of the kings of Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 8. This is rapid fire. Event number 8 is the divided kingdom. They have a civil war under a king named Rehoboam, the top Tribes go to the northern kingdom, and the southern tribes go to the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. Then event number nine is the southern kingdom is deported to Babylon. Event number ten is the southern kingdom returns from Babylon under three different returns. I won't test you on this, but Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. But then last week we spent a whole uh, 45 minutes talking about the time period between the Old Testament and New Testament. And I made a confession that I had never still to this day, never heard a sermon on the time period between the Old Testament and New Testament. But without an understanding of that time period, we struggle to understand why, who are the Pharisees and who are the Sadducees and why is everybody upset all the time. So basically what happens in the 40 years of science is there's four, four events that really happened in that time period. We have event number one, is Alexander the Great and the four kingdoms that descend from him. That Prophecy of that prediction is found in Daniel chapter 7, verse 6, and it describes Alexander the Great as a leopard. His conquest was like a leopard leaping quickly across the whole known world to conquest 
And he, Alexander the Great, you probably know this, Alexander the Great dies at age 32, leaving his whole kingdom to four wings and four heads. Daniel chapter 7, verse 6, the four wings, his kingdom is divided into four parts among his four heads, which are his four generals that take charge. And then event number two of the 40 years of silence is a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. He, like I said last week, Antiochus Epiphanes makes Ted Bundy look like a teddy bear. This guy is crazy. Antiochus Epiphanes in the abomination of desolation. Antiochus is king of one of the four kingdoms that descended from Alexander the Great. And Antiochus Epiphanes is a little bit irritated one day. I guess he woke up on the wrong side of the bed, so to speak. And then he decides to walk into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place in all of Jerusalem, the temple. And he sacrifices a pig on the altar, desecrating it. Which, obviously, as you can imagine, is not going to sit well with the Israelites. So what happens? So you have Alexander the Great, the Antiochus Epiphanes, and then you have the Maccabees. If you're familiar with that last name, you have the Maccabees and the Maccabean Rebellion and Independence. And a family called the Maccabees overthrow Antiochus Epiphanes, giving Israel freedom from about 160 B.C. to about 60 B.C. And then you have event number four of the 400 years of silence is a country called Rome. And Israel, Israel eventually comes under Rome's tentacles, and that's where we pick up in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, that Israel is under the rule or dominion of the nation of Rome. So that is, in a nutshell. <laughs> I just got to exhale. Okay. But today we really pick up in Matthew chapter 1, and when I look at Matthew chapter Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the book of Acts, a thought comes over me that sometimes we know things, but we don't know why we know them. Sometimes we know things, but we don't know why we know them. I remember, I know my childhood telephone number. Now, this is the day before you had cell phones where you could put, you don't have to memorize the phone numbers anymore, correct? Amen. Praise the Lord for it. Okay. So, uh, back in the day, I had to kind of type in from memory phone numbers, and I remember my childhood telephone number some 25 years after the last time I dialed it, and I'm not sure why I remember that. As a child, I remember calling a friend one time, and I memorize his phone number from even today, 534-2435. I don't know why I know Barry Barnes, Hank Aaron, and Babe Ruth's career home run marks, 762, 755, and 714. I'm not sure why I remember my first grade teacher and not my third grade teacher, or why I remember my first day of school and not my tenth day of school. I'm not sure why I struggle to remember my children's birthdays and my anniversary. I'm sure all the men in the room have made that mistake. Sorry. There are things in life that we just know, but we don't know why we know them. It's the same in the Christian life. Every single one of us here today, if you've been in church for any length of time, then you know my point today. You know it in your mind that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and the Savior of the world. That's nothing new. That's kind of, you want to say, uh, duh, but the question is, why? Why do you know that to be true? Let me just take it a step further. Why do you believe it to be true? If someone came up to you today after church and said, Why do you believe that gospel stuff? Why do you believe in Jesus? How would you respond? That is my quest today. 
Today we're going to give an apology, so to speak, an apology for our faith. The actual word apology means to give reason. It comes from the Greek word apologia, which is where we get the word apologetics. So let me just put it in a nutshell for you. Today is really apologetics for why we believe what we believe. Apologetics is three things. It is number one, knowing what you, it is what you believe why you believe it, and then being able to communicate in a way that makes sense to another person. So apologetics is three things. Knowing what you believe, why you believe it, and being able to communicate it to another person. That is our quest today. So my question is, is why do you believe Jesus is Messiah, the Son of God, and the Savior of the world? And that point encompasses my three parts today. We're going to explore why he's Messiah, why he's the Son of God, and why he's the Savior of the world. Why should you believe that Jesus is Messiah? Let me just ask a better question. Why should the Jews in the first century have looked at Jesus and understood that this is their Messiah? What proof do we have? But let's just define terms real quick. If you're not familiar with that word Messiah, the word Messiah comes from the Hebrew word Meshua, which means the anointed one. Now, there are a lot of different anointed ones in the Old Testament, but the one that we're thinking of and that the Jews are looking for in the first century is found in Daniel chapter 9. And I'm going to read that to you because from 2,000 years later, we see the truth in the text in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. And of course we see that Jesus is the Messiah because of this one verse. I'll read it to you. This is Daniel 9, 24. Seventy weeks have been declared for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression. Wait. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people in your holy city, seventy weeks of years, 490 years, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquities, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks it will be built again with plaza and moat and even times of distress. Okay, let me put it in a nutshell for you. What happened 490 years from the prediction of Daniel chapter 9? We know that Jesus rode in on the colt of a donkey proclaiming himself to be the Messiah and to make atonement for iniquity. We know Jesus to be the Messiah because of his prophecies found in the Old Testament. And if somebody were to walk up to you at Walmart today, why do you believe in Jesus the Messiah? Because of his prophecies found in the Old Testament. There are, one scholar estimates that there are 524 prophecies that Jesus fulfills in his lifetime. 524. And because of those 524, I can stand before you and I can proclaim with 1,000% confidence that he truly is the Messiah, the one that they have been looking for. Let me just share with you some prophecies that prove that he is the Messiah. Almost every aspect of his life can be predicted in the Old Testament. His birth is prophesied to be in Bethlehem in Micah 5.2. The virgin birth was prophesied in Isaiah 7.14. His arrival into Jerusalem was prophesied to the exact day in Daniel chapter 9. The exact type of arrival. That he's going to sit on a colt of a donkey. The type of arrival that he comes in on Palm Sunday is predicted in Zechariah 9.9. 500 years before Jesus even comes on the scene, it is prophesied that he is 
going to arrive into Jerusalem, your king, in Zechariah 9.9. His death was prophesied in Isaiah 53. The reason for his death in verse 3 of Isaiah 53. The manner of his death in verse 5 of 53. And even his resurrection from the dead is found in Isaiah 53 verse 11. But there's another one that really has struck me this week at just the, the sovereignty of God. Like you just can't make this stuff up. And there's only one of two conclusions. When you see the evidence in the Old Testament that Jesus is Messiah, you can either make a decision to reject him in total ignorance, or you just believe what is actually true. There's a prophecy that we see in Psalm chapter 22, verse 18. It says that they will cast lots for his clothes. What do we know that happens to Jesus on the cross itself? The soldiers stand before him, cast lots for his clothes. Jesus is the Messiah because of the Old Testament and the prophecies that he fulfills. That is kind of my bridge from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Part two, how do we know that Jesus is the Son of God? How do we know that Jesus is the Son of God? Now allow me to get all TMI on you. That means uh, too much information. There are four gospel accounts in the Bible. I know some of you are saying that's not TMI, okay? The word gospel comes from the Greek word euangelion, which means good news. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John essentially are good news of what? Of the coming of the Messiah, the Son of God, and the Savior of the world. And just real quickly, allow me to kind of unpack each of those books for you. The Gospel of Matthew is not... The name of the Gospel of Matthew is actually not the Gospel of Matthew. In the original language, it's called Kata Matthion. Kata means according to, Matthion means Matthew. So the Gospel of Matthew is called Kata Matthion, which means according to Matthew. And what is the Gospel of Matthew all about? We already know its central point, but what's it? The Gospel of Matthew, this is where I'm going to get kind of in TMI, and I'll pick you up a little bit later if you tune out on me for the next 20 seconds. The Gospel of Matthew was written to a Jewish audience. And this comes from a commentator that summarizes the book of Matthew. The central thrust of Matthew is that Jesus is as the anticipated Messiah, and in him the Old Testament promises have their fulfillment. And he goes on, he says, No other gospel connects the story of Jesus so closely to the Old Testament as Matthew does. The Gospel of Mark is the shortest of all the Gospels, a lot of scholars say the Gospel of Mark, so you have the Gospel of Matthew written to Jewish audiences, written by this guy named Matthew, then you have the Gospel of Mark, written by a guy named Mark, okay? But a lot of scholars say that that is Peter's Gospel, it's also the shortest Gospel account, a lot of scholars say that that's the earliest Gospel the audience of Mark were Gentiles. Why do we say this? For four main reasons. Number one, it's because the Jewish customs are explained. Number two, Aramaic expressions are translated into Greek. Number three, the Roman method of time is used. And number four, there are only a few Old Testament quotations used in the Gospel of Mark. Why? Because he's not speaking to Jews like Matthew is. He's speaking to a Gentile Roman world. The Gospel, let me just describe the purpose of the Gospel of Mark. The purpose of the Gospel of Mark is to prove that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, to a Roman audience, and then also, number two, to show Jesus' discipleship plan or method to all generations. There is a sub-theme in the Gospel of Mark of the discipleship path to knowing and following Christ. The Gospel of Luke, why was the Gospel of Luke written? 
If you have your Bible, it's given to you in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, right up front. Whereas Matthew and Mark, you kind of have to investigate a little bit more to understand why those were written. But Luke kind of just gives it right up front, and then John gives it right at the back. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 says this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of these things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the Lord. This is where Luke is speaking in verse 3. It seemed fitting for me, Luke, as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. That word Theophilus means God-lover. Just show off to your friends later. So that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Why was the Gospel of Luke written? It was written as a historical, accurate account for the ministry of Jesus Christ. And then the Gospel of John was written. If you've been here for the last year or so, then you probably know the verse I'm going to share. You probably have it highlighted in your Bible of why John, the Gospel of John was even written. John chapter 20, verse 31, if you've forgotten, let me refresh your memory. The Gospel of John was written for this reason, for these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in His name. The reason we believe Jesus is the Messiah, the reason I believe it today is not only the evidence in the Gospels, but because of the Old Testament and the prophecies, the 524 prophecies that He fulfills in His ministry. But the reason I believe that Jesus is the Son of God is because of, also because of the Gospel accounts. Before I dive into why, we still have an answer why you should believe Jesus is the Son of God. I'm going to get into that in just a second. But I uh, brought some fancy books up front. Um, so whenever I bring extra books up front, you know, number one, that my sermon's probably going to be TMI. And number two, I'm going to talk about them. Okay, so this is two books that I'm going to recommend to you to add to your library. This is the best book on the introduction of the New Testament that I have ever found. I bought it in seminary and I found it in a closet. That's where seminary books usually end up in the garage. But I bought it and I looked at it after I graduated and it was just a gold mine. It's called this. It's called An Introduction to the New Testament three-volume collection by D. Edmund Hebert. D. Edmund Hebert. So go on Amazon and buy that. This is a wonderful book. Buy it. This is also... If you want to know where a lot of my TMI comes from, is this fancy book right here. This is called The Dictionary of Jesus and the Gospels. It's actually a collection of dictionaries that I would encourage you to buy. The, the, uh, the collection of dictionaries, I'm trying to see if the actual name of it is on here, but it's a collection of dictionaries. The Dictionary of Jesus and the Gospels, buy both of those. You can take a look at it after the service if you'd like to. I just had to go on a rabbit trail, and I'll jump back to the text. The question I have is, how does Jesus' ministry prove that he is the Son of God? Because when we enter into the Gospel accounts, we see not only his birth and his young life in the book Gospel of Luke, but we also see his ministry. How does his ministry prove that he is the Son of God? It proves it in two ways. Jesus' claims and miracles prove that he is the Son of God, and Jesus' own disciples prove that he is the Son of God. I find it amazing that people in our culture say that Jesus only claimed to be, or he was only a good teacher or a good prophet, but Jesus did not leave room for that. That Jesus is far more. Think about the Gospel of John that we've been studying for the last year. What is Jesus 
claim to be. Every time you see the two words in the Gospel of John, you see the words, I am, that in the original language says, Ego Amy. What is he proclaiming to be? He is proclaiming to be the Son of God, but also God himself. The reason I believe that Jesus is the Son of God is because he told us he was. But how can we believe his words? Not only because of the prophecies that he fulfilled, but also because of his miracles. The, the, the crowds in the first century should have been able to look at his miracles and say, you know, that Jesus guy, it is pretty far-fetched that he says that he's the Son of God and he's God himself. But I believe him because of the miracles that he does. But what is the best evidence that we have that Jesus is the Son of God? His disciples. His disciples are the best proof that we have that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, why do I say that? For this reason. No one dies for a lie. No one dies for a lie. What do you know about all 12 disciples that followed Jesus Christ? All of them suffered. If they suffered, you know, if, if Herod, Antipas, came to them and, and threatened to shoot them with a gun, I know those didn't exist back then, and they said, unless you renounce your faith, if it, they were living for a lie, they would have probably renounced. But instead, what happens? That all 12 disciples that lived with Jesus for three years, all of them suffered, and 11 of them were martyred, and they all affirm Jesus' message that He is the Son of God because of their willingness to suffer pain. If Jesus were lying, then the book of Acts would not have been written. We'd probably be hearing of the myth of Jesus. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God because of his claims, because of his miracles, and because of the life of his disciples. It is undeniable. Sometimes, to take a quick story, sometimes I listen to sports radio i don't know if any of y'all have done that and back when i was a, in college i listened to sports radio a whole lot and i kind of substituted sports radio for dave ramsey and for sermons they might relate to that one but i remember back then in college every once in a while a sportscaster would say something truth say some say something true that was outside of sports itself and I remember this sportscaster, he said something, he said, reputations are always earned. Your reputation is always earned by how you conduct yourself day in and day out. Think about Jesus' reputation even to the non-believers in the world. They all revere him. They might think he's a liar. They might think he's a madman. They might, but they might think he's a prophet or just a good teacher. But there is a reverence that the whole world, even in the midst of their darkness, has for Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has earned his reputation, and his reputation is that he's not just a good teacher. He's not just a prophet. He didn't leave room for that. Let us not be deceived. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, because of his ministry and because of his disciples that left that were left behind. And part number three is Jesus is the Savior of the world, but why should you believe that? I mean, obviously, beyond the main answer to that question, because the Bible says so, I mean, that is an answer to all of these propositions, but why should you believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world? Why? Two words, because of his impact. Think about Jesus' impact around the world even today. 
even to non-believers, even to people that do not know and believe in him as a savior of the world. Think about his life and his legacy and his impact around the world. Think about a person that has impacted history. Think about a person that has impacted history. I'm going to name a few. Julius Caesar, Alexander the Great, Sir Isaac Newton, Steve Jobs, Albert Einstein, Constantine, Nikola Tesla, whoever that guy is, right? Pick your name. Pick an influential person in the world. But don't just pick a name. I want you to think of every influential person that you can think of, and you put them all in a pot, into a bucket. All of their lives combined together pale in comparison to the impact that Jesus Christ has left. All of them pale in comparison. All of the scientists, rulers, all of them are as a drop in a bucket, as a wave that washes up on the sea comparatively to the hurricane that is behind that wave known as Jesus Christ. Think about Jesus Christ and his impact on the world outside of the Bible and outside of this room. Time itself is measured in Jesus Christ. We have B.C. before Christ. Think about buildings are erected in the name of Christ. Not only is this building erected in the name of Christ, but think about when I, would li- when I lived in Dallas, Texas, and I went to seminary out there, there were a lot of hospitals, but it seemed like almost every hospital had Baptist, Methodist, or Presbyterian on it. That is a signal of the impact of Jesus Christ even 2,000 years later. Even other religions were affected by him. I find it amazing that Islam doesn't even ignore Jesus. The enemy, Satan, saw, I believe, saw Jesus' impact in the first century and then began to plant seeds regarding additional religions that hide and deceive. Islam itself affirms Jesus' influence Yet their deception is from the enemy. Let me just say this. Oftentimes the enemy's most dangerous deception is, a, is one that is close to truth but not truth. Let me say that again. Often the enemy's most dangerous deception to the world is one that is close to truth but is not the truth. Jesus' impact is seen throughout the world. Why do I believe that he's the savior of the world? It's because his impact did not just stay in the nation of Israel, but it has spread throughout the whole known earth. But Jesus' impact is also seen in the book of Acts. If you have the book of Acts, you can go to it if you want to. The book of Acts is a recording of the early church. The actual Greek title for the book of Acts is not the book of Acts. It's actually the actions of the apostles. And we see in the book of Acts, we see really two primary apostles that are really seen or that unfolded their story. We have the actions of Peter and the actions of Paul. And the general outline for the book of Acts is seen in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You'll recognize this verse. It's very famous. Jesus is speaking, and he gives the outline for the whole book in verse 8 of chapter 1. He says, But you disciples will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria, and even to the even remotest part of the earth. The disciple receive, disciples receive power in Acts chapter 1 and 2. The disciples then are witnesses to Jerusalem, Acts chapter 2 through 7, to Judea and Samaria, Acts chapter 8 through 12, and to the whole world, Acts chapter 13 through 28. The purpose for the book of Acts was to record an account 
of the historical pro- progression of the gospel in the early church. Piecing together the Bible, the New Testament, that is a summary of the gospel accounts and the book of Acts. Jesus is the Messiah. Why? Because of his prophecies that he fulfilled in the Old Testament. He's the Son of God because of the gospel accounts and his ministry, and he's the Savior of the world because of his impact seen in the book of Acts itself. That's nice and all. That's nice information, but kind of what does it mean for me? That's kind of the question I would like to answer with the rest of the time I have together for us today. What does it mean for you in the 21st century? You here today are one of two people. You, you, you are one of two people. And there are only two people in this world. You are either a believer in Jesus Christ or you're an unbeliever in Jesus Christ. Amen? There's, not, there's no gray there, man. You're either going to heaven or you're going to hell. There's no other way to heaven but through Christ alone. You are either a believer in Jesus Christ or you're an unbeliever in Jesus Christ. So today I'm going to talk to you two people. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, when you look at the Scripture, when I look at the Old Testament prophecies that He is the Messiah, the Christ, when I look that He is the Son of God, that He is God Himself, He is incarnate, when I look that He is the Savior of the world, I say, duh. But what does it mean for you? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, how does this truth shape your life? If, since He is those things, then He must be Lord of your life. Now, what do I mean by that? That He is your master, that He is your ruler, that He is in charge of your life. He has control. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, it's not just a bunch of fire insurance, but He is also Lord and master of your life. Can I get an amen to that one, please? He is Lord. He is my ruler. He is my master. But is He? Is he? Who is in the driver's seat of your life? We want Jesus to be a passenger in the back seat. But we don't want Jesus to be a back seat driver because that's really annoying. We don't really want him to tell us what to do. We just want him kind of around to convenience us when we need to and kind of bless us and give us a reminder of his love. But that's not Jesus that we need. That's not the Jesus that we deserve. Some Jesus in the back seat that is a convenience for us. Jesus, who is the Messiah, the Son of God, and the Savior of the world, he is also our master. He is our kurios. He is our Lord. My question for you is, is this. If you look at your life, you look at the car that you drive every day. You look at, if you could put your whole life into that car, where is Jesus sitting? Is he in charge? Is he driving the car? Or is he in the side? Or is he in the back? And you just say, shh, 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 be quiet. I'm driving. Jesus deserves to go from the back to the driver's seat and for us to sit on the side. 
And then person number two today is a Christian, or first is a Christian, is he Lord of your life, and second person today is those that Jesus isn't even in the car with you. I think one of the greatest tools of the enemy that he can ever have is to convince a non-believer that he is a believer. That because of some preacher some 25 years ago, some preacher told you that you are a Christian because you repeated some incantation. Sorry, sore spot. Because you, if you repeat these words after me, then you're saved. But repeating words don't save you. It's faith in Jesus Christ. And some of you today are completely deceived. Some of you believe that Jesus is in the car with you, but he has no room. You have filled that up with every other obligation, every other belief besides following him. Is Jesus even part of your life? Do you have a relationship with him? Perhaps one of the greatest indicators, if you're a Christian or not, is the fruit that you have in your life. Is it, do you have a relationship with him? Is he changing you? But the question is, why would you want a relationship with the Lord? Some of you here today are probably asking that question. Why would I even want him to be in the car and to be in charge of my life? Because if you've been a Christian for some time, then you know the Christian life isn't easy. Amen? It's a pain sometimes. <laughs> okay, a, The Bible tells you to love people when you really don't want to. <laughs> Amen. Okay, The Bible says to forgive your neighbor even though you don't want to. The Bible says not to hold a grudge even though you want to. The Christian life isn't easy. It won't necessarily make you wealthy. It won't always bring you happiness. Why would you want to be a Christian? Because there's something that Jesus offers to you that no one else can. If you're honest with yourself, you look at your life and you realize how messed up it really is. You look at the people around you and they, they're just a bunch of jerks. And then without Christ, you look around and you wonder why life is that way. The reason your life is a mess, the reason that you can't ever have enough, the reason that people are mean in this world and they honk at you at random times is because of a word called sin. The word sin is the Greek word harmatia, which means to miss the mark. And because of sin, we are imperfect. And we cannot earn our way into the presence of a perfect God, so therefore God sent his Son to satisfy God's justice and God's need for payment of our sin and our debt that we could not pay in and of ourselves. And Jesus Christ came and he lived a perfect life and he died as the Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb. That way God the Father would pass over our sins at the doorposts of our soul, our sinful souls. And then if we would simply believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior, that we would be saved. You know, to speak, this world believes in karma, that you get what you deserve, but that is a life in the pit of hell. The gospel is this, that Jesus did not get what he deserved. He died in our stead, and that if we would believe in him, that we would be saved. That is the message of truth. If Jesus is not in the car with you, then question is, will you believe in him today? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for today. 
Um, I know today was a little bit more academic, a little bit more just holistic and probably more all over the place than I typically preach. Uh, but Lord, I just pray for the Christians in this room that, that they would walk away having an understanding of why we believe what we believe. And then for the non-believers in this room, Lord, I pray that they would walk out of this room confronted with the truth. That you're not just a good person, you're not just a good teacher, you're not just a good prophet, but you came as the Messiah, the Son of God, and the Savior of the world, and you died in our stead, and that we would believe in you, that we would be saved. I just pray for today. I just, um, that you would, your spirit would work in all of our hearts and our minds to shape us into a more perfect image of your Son. And Lord, I thank you for what is about to occur, not only for the lunch that follows uh, this service, but also for the baptism that we get to celebrate together. Lord, thank you for the new life that that represents. And uh, thank you for this church. I love my church. I love this church, and I just have a, just such an affection for everyone in this room. Thank you for the honor it is to be with them and to preach. Bless, bless the rest of the today. In Jesus' name, amen.